Nehemiah chapter 13. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we do thank you for uh, this this book and uh, for your word. We thank you for Nehemiah as an example of someone who was just jealous for your holiness and for your glory and and uh, this record of all the things that he did on on behalf of of that. And I uh, pray that that'll be an encouragement to us as well. Lord, we pray you'll bless our time now together as we study your word and help us to see in our own lives how it applies. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, to get our uh, context, let's read in chapter 13. Let's start in verse 23 and just read through the end of the chapter. In those days, I, I sorry, Mr. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other people, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him, caused even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Elisha, the high priest who was son-in-law to Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. Okay. Last week we started this section, which is the last problem that Nehemiah had to deal with after his absence between his first and second terms as governor. Um, and so this is intermarriage with the surrounding nations, and these nations all were their traditional enemies of Israel. Um, but the men had taken wives from these uh, other nations, and he notes that the children did not we're not learning the Hebrew language, which is it's not just the language of the people, but it's the language of their religion. So they were also not, probably not being taught uh, their religion. And so there was a spiritual uh, problem there. So Nehemiah reacts to this pretty strongly. He contends with them. He puts them under a curse, which might be a that he executes the curse from chapter 10 that all everybody had agreed to, uh, the punishment of that. Uh, striking them may have been uh, administering a flogging for violating the law. And then uh, pulling out their hair is kind of a, it's an, it shames them. So it's a form of public shame. Uh, another part of punishing, punishing them for violating the law then he makes them swear by God to keep the law and not uh, intermarry. One of the things that uh, we don't see here is that 
there's no record of him telling them they had to send away the foreign wives. Back in Ezra, when he dealt with this problem, they did do that. But we don't see that here in this, in this passage. So that brings up to, us up to verse 26, where we left off last time. So that's, uh, you know, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. So this is an example here of uh, basically the personal spiritual disaster that can come from violating God's law. It wasn't just an arbitrary law. There was actually uh, a good reason for this prohibition because it would uh, ruin a person's relationship with God. And the example here is Solomon. And he really was probably the greatest of Israel's kings as far as uh, the fact that he extended the boundaries of David's kingdom. He accumulated far more wealth. He built the temple. He built the palaces. Um, a lot of things that he did and accomplished. So let's, I want to just quickly review some of them. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 6. So look at uh, the things that Solomon had accomplished. 1 Kings chapter 6. Let's go to the last, the end of it. Um, someone like to read from chapter 6, verse 37, through verse 1 of chapter 7. Just the three verses. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year on the month of Zib. And the eleventh year in the month of Bol, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. It took Solomon thirteen years, however, to complete the construction of his, of his palace. Okay, so here's the construction of the temple, the construction of his palace. Um, going on in chapter 7, looking at verse 8, it says, And his house where he was to live, again, construction, the other court inward from the hall was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. So she was a very important person, so he built a palace for her as well. So there's all this construction that he'd been doing. Now let's turn to Second uh, Chronicles. I sometimes chapter of things that don't get done. I think, how did they get so much done? Even though I've paid them 150 years, sometimes on some of the houses Well, Solomon was king. When you look at the temple, he had like thousands of people under his command working on it. You don't have those resources. <laughs> tons and tons of gold. Yes, he had resources. Second uh, Chronicles, chapter one. Someone like to read verses 11 and 12 for us. God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given you. And I will also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, <coughs> such as no king who was before you ever had, and that none after you will have. 
Okay, so here's God's promise to give him tremendous wisdom, tremendous knowledge, wealth, riches, and it says more than any other king before or after you has. Let's turn to chapter 9 in Second Chronicles. Someone would like to read just verse 22. Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Okay, that kind of just summarizes Solomon. Despite all his wisdom, he had tons of foreign wives. And what happened to this great king? He fell. He stumbled. They introduced him to their their foreign gods, the pagan gods, and he sinned. Um, turned his heart away. Um, we don't have to go back and look at it. In fact, that's back in First Kings, um, and this this made God angry. And Nehemiah's point here is: Do any of you have more wisdom and power than Solomon? You know, he couldn't. Despite all his resources, he was taken down by this sin. You know, it caused him to stumble and fail spiritually. He says, you're not better than Solomon. If you start marrying foreign wives, you're going to f- fall in your relationship to God as well. Um, now, one of the things we see here in our verse, uh, verse 26, says he was loved by his God. You know, God blessed him. What it doesn't say is that Solomon loved God. In return. Let's turn to Psalm 18. Someone like to read verse 1 for us. Psalm 18, verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Okay, so this is a Psalm of David. And it starts out by saying, I love you, O Lord. I don't think Solomon would have written a psalm like this. I don't think he had that deep love for the Lord that, that David did. Um, and the, the passages, you know, say you know, his heart was turned away. He was turned to pagan gods and worshipped them. So he's this example of failure. And that's a warning that Solomon's, excuse me, that Nehemiah is giving to the Jews. You know, it wasn't just a matter of taking oaths and things, but he says, look, here's the danger of failure. If you do this, you're going to fail. You know, Solomon was a better man than you are, and he, he stumbled, so don't do it. You know, don't follow in his path. You think he was yeah. the greatest king on the right. earth. It's like, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I th- you know, we were going back and looking way back when they were building the temple. And uh, there were some numbers about how much gold Solomon put into the temple. And I was trying to calculate the tons of gold and the volume of the gold and the size of the inner sanctuary. And it was like it was plated with gold, like quarter inch thick. The entire inner room (laughs) or something that I came up with. I mean, it wasn't just gold foil. It was... It had to be thick mm-hmm. to account for all the gold that he put into it. So, um. It's interesting, the difference between David and Solomon, because David sinned too and yes. had to bear the consequences. 
Right. But his his repentance and his relationship with the Lord yes. continued where Solomon was given all these advantages right. and just never cultivated. Right. He was never... I, I don't know if he was called to account for it, but it never showed any mm-hmm. repentance and contrition and humility in God before God. And I always so. think it's interesting, too, how he was given wisdom, because we see this in the business world, and where people really are very successful, and they're wise about mm-hmm. their success. They use God's principles or standards, but there's no spiritual relationship. There's, there's no spiritual life in them, yeah. no. Okay, so, so Nehemiah's trying hard, don't intermarry, giving him different reasons. Uh, going on and looking at verse 27. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God, by marrying foreign women? So here's, here's his viewpoint. They've acted unfaithfully against God. So this is an example of uh, the relationship with God is what he's talking about here. Um, that they've been unfaithful. And this is the, the opposite of Nehemiah. Now, as we've gone through this book, he has been faithful to God in, in so many different ways. He's been faithful to God. He's been faithful to the law. Um, we see all these passages where he says, remember me, God. And he talks about his faithfulness to God. Um, he was jealous for God's holiness. He guarded the holiness of the temple, the temple worship services, the Sabbath. He defended God's holiness and God's glory. Um, he made sure there were proper provisions for worshiping God, for honoring God. And now he's trying to fight to basically to um, preserve the holiness of God's chosen people. So he was concerned with the holiness of the temple. And now he's concerned about the holiness of God's people. Let's look back at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Someone like to read that for us. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Okay. So they were God's special people. They were holy to God. And he's trying to preserve that here because they were diluting that by intermarrying. They were not being faithful to God. Um, So this failure to separate themselves from the Gentiles, from the um, paganism, from the idolatry, he calls it a great evil. Um, And it doesn't just violate God's command, but it destroys their identity. The Jews are God's people. That's their identity. But if they fail to remain God's people, then who are they? Just some other Semitic tribe. They're no one. Their identity lies in a relationship with God. Now this Christians, we we have some similar commands here. Let's turn to James chapter 4. Someone like to read verse 4 for us. James chapter 4, verse 4. 
for us. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, so we're told to separate ourselves as well. Um, we are called a holy people, a holy priesthood. God says, separate yourself from the world. If you, and you're not to be an enemy of the world, but separate yourself unto God. You know, our identity is we are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Um, let's look at uh, in 1 John chapter 2. John says something very similar. 1 John chapter 2. So I'd like to read verse 15 for us. Okay. So our love is to be for God, not for the things of the world. Um, you know, we to live in the world, but not be of the world. So we function here within the world's, in the world's system, but we're not supposed to be a part of it. We're supposed to be separate. Um, and so in a, in a similar way, we, you know, we are to be holy under the Lord as, as the Jews were. And we should protect that. And they violated this by marrying foreign women. And so they joined themselves to Gentiles, to, to those who were unclean or not part of God's people. Um, and again, we have similar um, requirements as Christians, not to be joined to uh, people in the world about, you know, should we marry an unbeliever? Well... No. <laughs> let's, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6. And would someone like to read verses 14 through 17? Seventeen also, please. Sorry. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Okay. He goes on and says, and I will be a father to you. But so here we have basically the command for us to be separate, just like God commanded the Jews to be separate. You know, we are people holy to the Lord. He even uh, Paul even quotes from passages from the Old Testament where God is telling the Jews he wants them to be holy and separate. Um, now, does this passage specifically mention marriage? No, it's kind of a general term, you know, don't be bound together with unbelievers. And 
you know, when you're young and in love and trying to rationalize things, you say, well, it doesn't say I can't be married to an unbeliever. Um, is there any relationship that's more bound together than a husband and wife? <laughs> no, it's really not. You know, it is, it's kind of a no-brainer, but, you know, being in love is a definition of no-brainer, you know. <laughs> we, stop, we stop being rational. Uh, so, but again, you know, it's the same thing that, that Nehemiah was um, jealous for the holiness of God's people. And today we should be also jealous for the holiness of God's people, but not to be, you know, part of the world or to be separate from the world. Um, before we leave uh, New Testament, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. When I was doing the research on this, I, I don't think I saw this referenced. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. Someone read that for us. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Okay, so here's a specific requirement for separation for someone who's remarrying. You know, it's a specific case, but this one does mention, is in the context of marriage. Um, Paul says, whoever she wishes, and then he puts a limit on it. Within the Christian community, but only in the Lord. So I think a lot of times, um, as believers, we don't realize how different we are from unbelievers. You know, we've been separated from them. We've got new, we're new creations. We're part of God's, you know, Christ's kingdom. We've been delivered from the domain of Satan and delivered into Christ's kingdom. Um, and we forget just how big a change that is. And we think that we can join ourselves together with unbelievers. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Either there's going to be friction or we're going to be dra dragged down and our spiritual life is going to suffer. Okay, back to Nehemiah. I do want to finish today if we can. <laughs> uh, verse 28 says, Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. So here's one specific example of, of the defilement of the priesthood. So Eliashib's the high priest, so this is his grandson, who would have been a priest and would have been eligible to have become high priest. And he marries the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. So Sanballat, if we remember back, was not just some Gentile, but he was probably one of the worst enemies of the Jews and of um, Nehemiah. So let's go back and look at a short history of Sanballat. Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's see all the things he did. Nehemiah chapter 2 is someone like to read verses 9 and 10 for us. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat, the Horonite, 
and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Okay, so Sanballat and Tobiah were, they did not want to see anyone help the Jews. They were the enemy of the Jews. And Eliashib is so somewhat related by um, marriage with Sanballat, and then he's the one that gave Tobiah the place to live in the temple. So that's, there's our other problem is Eliashib. Okay, so there, he's opposed to anyone seeking welfare of the Jews. Let's go to chapter 4. Um, someone like to read verse 1 and verse 7. Well, just those two verses. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And, the, and, and seven. Yeah. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashkenites heard about the return of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Okay. Extremely angry at this rebuilding of the wall. And they opposed it, and we will see some of the things he did. Let's turn to chapter 6. Someone like to read verses 1 and 2 here for us. When word came to Samuel, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, what I had, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a, a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. Okay, so they're trying to get Nehemiah out of town, out into a rural area where they could either kill him or kidnap him or something. So basically this was an assassination attempt that Sanballat set in order against Nehemiah. And then lastly in chapter 6, uh, someone liked to read verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Okay, and this letter then went on to say, it was a letter he was going to send to the king, which basically was blackmail. So he tried to assassinate Nehemiah, tried to blackmail him. Um, there's, there's a little bit of bad blood there. <laughs> yeah, so Sanballat was his, definitely an enemy of Nehemiah the governor. Um, and we also, I mean, we've seen some of the Nehemiah's run-ins with Eliashib, the high priest, especially regarding Tobiah and giving him a room in the temple uh, grounds. So this particular marriage of Eliashib's grandson with the daughter of Sanballat was rather onerous to, um, to Nehemiah. And... Uh, so it says, as a result, Nehemiah drove this man away from him. And this term can be translated banished or expelled. So some of the translations might have those terms. One commentary said that this meant he was banished from the religious community. So he was a priest, and Nehemiah basically kicked him out of the priesthood at first, at least the main thing. Um, and he was specifically banished. Um, now, 
looking at a couple reasons for this. One, one is political. You know, he, he married into a family of someone who tried to assassinate the governor. <laughs> you know, so this is insurrection in a sense, um, an insurgent. So he, won, you know, he had to get rid of him for that reason. But there's also special restrictions on the priesthood about who they can marry. It's tighter even than, than the general population. So let's go back to Leviticus 21, and we'll see some of the religious connotations of the priests marrying um, outside of the Jews. Chapter 21 of Leviticus. Um, first, would someone like to read verses 6 and 7? They must be holy to their God and must not profane the name of their God because they present the food offerings to the Lord and the food of their God, they are to be holy. They must not marry women defiled, defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands because priests are holy and to their God. Okay, the priest is to be holy as he stands before God. And so here's the, these are limitations that were not on the rest of the population. Um, and then also in Leviticus 21, would someone like to read verses 13 through 15? And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Okay. So there again, we, we have some of the same requirements. But these are not requirements for the general Jewish population. Um, he has to be holy. And I think this one of the things this um, also reflects is how God considers marriage to indeed be one flesh. The husband and wife becomes one flesh. If the wife is defiled, then the husband, the priest, is defiled and he cannot appear before God in this way as a, you know, to offer sacrifices. So this shows that she must be holy also if, if he is going to be holy before God. And so because of this violation of uh, the regulations of the priesthood, he was not qualified to be a priest. And that's another one of the reasons why Nehemiah banished him from the priesthood. <clears throat> now going through the commentaries, they all mention, um, and you might even see it in notes in, the, in your Bibles, Josephus wrote about something similar that happened you know, a couple centuries later during the time of Ale Alexander the Great, that a priest was banished. And there's a little bit of confusion as to whether um, Josephus was actually referring to this incident in Nehemiah and got the dates wrong because some of the names are very similar or whether that actually was the second event, you know, centuries later. Um, but he does record something similar. <clears throat> so we see again, Nehemiah is jealous for God's holiness, for the holiness of the temple, for the holiness of worship. And we see this emphasized again in the next uh, two verses going back to Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 29 and 30. He says, Remember them, O my God, because they've defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 
Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. So here he clearly states that they have defiled the priesthood by this intermarriage. Uh, and so he's focusing here not on the general population, but the priests and the Levites. Um, they defiled, defiled this covenant that they had relationship between God and the Levites and the priests. So he considers this an affront to God, and he's especially hard on them because they've got a higher standard to, to meet. Now we've seen it several times, and we'll see it again, where Nehemiah says, remember me, oh my God, because of the things he has done. Um, now here he says, remember them, oh my God, for the evil they have done. So Nehemiah knows God is the judge who will administer justice. He will reward those who are righteous. He will punish those who are evil. And so he's essentially, with all these remembering phrases we see, he's saying, God, we know that you will judge. And remember these things that I have done. Remember, basically, remember the, remember the facts of the case. And, and render a correct and, and righteous judgment. They've done evil. They deserve punishment. I've been loyal and faithful to you. I, please reward me for that. So the New American Standard then goes on and says, uh, in verse 30, says, Then I purified them from everything foreign. Well, who's them? If you have an NIV... Okay. Yeah, priests and Levites. Okay, that's that's not in the Lev. That's that's basically an interpretation of who them is, and I think it's probably accurate. I think it's correct because the focus seems to be on the uh, Levites and the priests. Um, so he purifies them again. That's to make them acceptable for service before God. Uh, He's not talking here about purifying the general public, just the religious uh, leaders. Now, other than this one priest who was banished, you know, we're not told that he did anything specific uh, to any of the other Levites or priests. We're not told whether any more of them were banished or whether they were told to separate from their wives, put their wives away like they did in Ezra's day. Um, so it's, we just don't know what happened here. But whatever he did, the, the ones who were left were purified and acceptable to serve. Um, he also says that he appointed duties uh, for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. So he, he organized them in their service. And again, this is something that you know, 15 years earlier, they seem to have been organized, and now they were disorganized again or something. Um, but he organized them in his, uh, uh, for their duties. And this is similar to what David did. If you actually go back, if you look in First Chronicles, there's four chapters, 23 through 26. We're not going to read through those. <laughs> we're not, but uh, there's four chapters where where David basically sets up 
you know, who's the singers, who's the gatekeepers, how, you know, who's going to watch the storage rooms, who's going to keep them secure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, who sings, who, who offers these sacrifices. And so David organized all that. Um, and that's what Nehemiah is doing here. And this, this kind of raised a question for me, because I would think, it, wouldn't that be the responsibility of the high priest or the priesthood? to organize the religious services. And yet it was actually the, the government rulers, David the king and Nehemiah the governor who organized uh, this. And I, I think this speaks to kind of the decay of the religious leaders, the, the priesthood. Okay, let's go on to verse... 31, our last verse. It says, And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So this is a couple more things that he, Nehemiah took care of to ensure, again, proper worship. Uh, first one was the you had to have wood for the burnt offerings. So he made sure there was a supply of wood. And then also mentions the first fruits. This was the provision for the priesthood. The tithe was what supplied the Levites. The first fruits went to the priesthood. So let's go back to chapter 10. This was the covenant they made 15 years earlier. And would someone like to read verses 34 through 36? Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law, and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the first of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. Okay, so this had all been arranged 15 years earlier. They had covenanted with God and took an oath that they would do this in the proper way. And, you know, a lot, this, whole, this whole covenant was violated. You know, there's just, you know, as we go through this book, it's, I, you know, it amazes me <laughs> how many failures there were, especially with the priesthood. You know, the high priest was just about worthless as far as, you know, um, caring about God's glory and the temple worship. Um, they just did not care. And I think um, in the past we've looked at the book of Malachi a couple times, and I think Malachi was uh, ministered around this time, and he addresses that. He talks about the priesthood and how they just despised God. They didn't care. They'd bring blemished sacrifices and... Um, and it was the Nehemiah and the government leader who actually was more concerned with God's holiness than the priest was, which is really sad. 
Okay, so as we get to the end of the Nehemiah, what is the last thing he says again here? Remember me, oh my God, for good. And again, this is, um, Ezra wrote this book. He recorded, so these are Nehemiah's memoirs that Ezra took and recorded uh, within the scriptures. Um, but Nehemiah, again, this is his, you know, his last writings. He says, you know, he knows that he's probably come to the end of his life. He's, he's saying, God, remember me. Well, I'm going to pass into your presence. Um, remember the good things I did. <laughs> remember my faithfulness to you. What day do we have now? What? We have 460. Where are we at? What dates? Oh. Just round. Uh, I would say 430, maybe. Because basically, only have 400 years of darkness before Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I can remember when Artaxerxes uh, made the proclamation that sent Nehemiah back. That was in 444 BC. And I so, have in so, my Bible 440. The date it was written was 445 to 432. Okay. So you said 430. So we're around 430 BC. Yeah. So we're getting close to time. We don't have anything really recorded. Right. Like the silence. But. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, the gap this between. It's not 400 years. Or yeah. One. I do have one question though. What? What was Nehemiah's greatest accomplishment? What do you think his greatest accomplishment was? Finishing the walls, that's what you hear about, right? That was a huge construction job. You get, you get to this last verse and what did he say? I'm arranged for the firewood. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but really, Right. In, in a state, um, not establishing, but in being a reminder to the nations, then the spiritual cleanup was really, and the woods are part of it. Right. God's, I think Nehemiah's desire to, to see God's holiness was more important to him than rebuilding the walls. And that's what he asked. He said, God, remember me for being faithful to you and preserve, you know, being jealous for your holiness. Yeah, I, I got the walls rebuilt, but that was just a task that was not as important. So I think that shows his, uh, his devotion to God there. So, Okay, well, we finished the book. Um, as I mentioned before, we're going to go into Haggai uh, next month, or next week, excuse me. So, uh, Brian, would you like to close some prayer for us today? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word and thank you that uh, we're blessed with these teachers that dig into your word and teach us. And thank you for the ability to be able to gather together to hear your word. Um, please be with us and this next hour come and <clears throat> let Pastor Robert's message be clear and our hearts and minds be open for to receive your message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.